open up your Bibles to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 11, verses 1 through 4. If you need a Bible, raise your hand, and uh, one of these handsome young gentlemen will, will get you one. But uh, in your New Testament, it's going to be Matthew, Mark, Luke, or chapter 11. The verses are the small letters, if you're new to kind of navigating the Bible, uh, verses 1 through 4. So the beginning of chapter 11 is where we're going to camp out this morning. Let's read, we'll, and then I'll uh, pray and we'll dive in. Now Jesus was praying in a certain place, and when he finished... One of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray, as John taught his disciples. And he said to them, when you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread and forgive us our sins. For we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us. And lead us not into temptation. Let's pray. Father, we meet once again to bow before your word. To get underneath the authority of your word. To build our lives upon the foundation of your word. There are myriad voices in our culture ready to direct us, ready to tell us what we need, ready to tell us how to fix all that ails us, and yet we know that the one place, the only one who has the words of eternal life is you. And so we come to you this morning asking you to help us. Help us navigate the complex terrain of of prayer and relationship with a God that we can't see face to face and a God that we don't always feel like we hear from or know what you're doing. A Father that's supposedly near but sometimes feels distant and God, we need you to draw near in these moments and teach us what it looks like to relate to you. We need you to teach us how to pray. So I pray, God, that you would be pleased to use the time we have toward that end for your glory and uh, for the good of your people here this morning. So in your name I ask these things. Amen. Um. Real quick, sorry. So, this is now actually, if you were out last week, or this is your first time uh, hanging with us, uh, this is the second week really looking at this text that um, is uh, typically referred to as the Lord's Prayer. It's kind of Luke's version of what uh, maybe is more familiar in Matthew's Sermon on the Mount, 
perhaps a summarized version of that very same conversation Jesus was having with his disciples there in Matthew, I think it's six, or uh, perhaps another kind of reiteration as Jesus is teaching his disciples how to pray. But in either case, uh, what we have is the Lord teaching us how to pray here. The disciples, and I kind of said this last week, uh, when they hear Jesus pray, when they hear him engage with his heavenly father, there is something compelling about it. There is something that makes them say, man, we want to learn how to do what you're doing. <laughs> And one of the things that we see is that um, Jesus's relationship with the Father and his prayer life, therefore, must be compelling. But one of the other pieces to that uh, and this disciple's request to teach or to learn from Jesus is the reality that prayer is often complex or confusing, that we need help. That even the guys who would go on to be the apostles and lead the charge for the kingdom of God and the advance in the world are saying, we don't know how to pray. Can you help us? Can I get an amen on that? I I feel that myself. You kind of sit there and you wonder, what am I doing right now? Am I supposed to be journaling? Maybe that would help. Talking out loud. Maybe that would help. Going for a walk. Using beads. What am I supposed to do? And we talked about a lot of that last week. But really, uh, what we camped, camped out on last time was there at the beginning of verse 2. As, as Jesus' help comes straight away to these disciples, the first thing he says, if, if you see it, is this idea of, of God as Father. He says, when you pray, say, Father. And it was my contention uh, last week that this idea, knowing God as Father, is really uh, kind of the entry point to all of prayer. Knowing Him in that sort of intimate, affectionate, uh, dependent, uh, uh, hopeful relationship, knowing Him as a good dad is actually kind of the thing that all the rest of your prayer life is going to kind of key off of. And if you miss Him as Father, you will miss the rest of really where we're going to go uh, from this point on. But we will say more about that uh, a bit later. At this point, actually, as a way of kind of introduction, um, what I really want to do is widen our lens a bit and begin to consider this prayer that Jesus gives us here as a whole. Uh, in verses 2 through 4, I want to look at it, just kind of macro level, broaden our lens out a bit, and say a few things about um, the prayer as a whole. As we begin to approach the words, what I think I see, and I hope you'll see it as well, is that Jesus is, in, in essence, kind of laying down a sort of pattern for us. Um, I think that's what we should gather when he says, when you pray, say. He's like, I'm going to give you some words. I'm going to give you a pattern to help direct, to help govern uh, your prayer life. Now, I talked a little bit about this last time, but I don't necessarily think that Jesus is saying, hey, you should kind of mindlessly recite what I'm saying. In fact, in uh, Matthew's version of it, Jesus, right before giving them the Lord's Prayer, uh, says, don't be like the Gentiles who think they're going to be heard for their many words, and they just kind of repeat these mindless things. 
So I don't think he's saying, I'm giving you the magic formula, everybody. Write this down. You say this, it's going to be like one of those spells on Harry Potter. Doors are going to open, things are going to happen. No, I don't think it's that way at all. I think what he is giving us is, is basic principles, a pattern uh, that we can kind of learn from and then start to develop our prayer lives uh, in accordance with. Um, so let me show you this. I, I think that um, this prayer Jesus gives us can be divided into three parts. We might say up front that it begins with this idea of what I would call adoring. And here we land uh, again at that idea of God as Father in the verse part of verse 2. By adoring, what I mean is, I think, uh, Jesus is saying you need to know God as he is, in his goodness, his greatness, all that he is for you. You need to be aware of it as you enter into prayer, and you need to be delighting in it. There's an adoration that should mark your prayer life and kind of, again, be the entry point for the whole thing. As we know his love, as we know his kindness, as we're aware and we grow in awareness of the one we're speaking to. So adoring is where this whole thing begins, I think. And then the second part, as you move towards the latter half of verse 2, is what I would call surrendering. So from this idea of awareness of God as Father and adoring Him for all that He is, we move to these prayers that I would say seem to indicate this idea of surrendering. Uh, namely, if you look at it, here's what we see. Hallowed be your name, your kingdom come. So in other words, there's kind of this laying down at this point of, of my name and my kingdom and this desire to see His name hallowed and His kingdom come. So a, a surrendering uh, seems to me to be what comes next there. And then, maybe perhaps somewhat surprisingly, after surrendering all things, it would seem, in verses 3 through 4, we actually come to what I would call knocking. Uh, and that's keying off of the um, parable that we'll look at probably next week, where Jesus says, man, knock, 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 keep knocking. God is going to answer. He's a good father. He loves to open the door. So in other words, we move from adoring God, seeing him uh, as he is and, 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 and delighting in that uh, to surrendering uh, before him and desiring for his name, his kingdom, to then actually bringing our own requests to him. To coming, like we talked about last week, like a child and laying it all out before him. Here's what I need my dad to do. And we realize that just because we surrender all things doesn't mean that we don't bring our requests to him. In fact, it's, it's imperative that we do. You might, though I'm probably getting ahead of myself, think of Gethsemane here. Might you not? Hey, God, please, I, Father, Take this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. I'm surrendered. I want your name. I want, I, I want your kingdom. But here's my request. Here's my knocking. Here's what I'm asking for help with. In verses 3 through 4, 
This is what you see. The second person of your name, your kingdom, turns into the first person of us and our. Give us each day our daily bread and forgive us our sins. For we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us. And lead us not into temptation. We need help. Dad, can you help us? One more thing I'll say about this, because I don't want you to miss it, is I think that critical to this pattern that Jesus kind of lays out here is actually the sort of order in which things come, things come. I do think that it's as if Jesus is giving us a sort of prioritization. There's a sort of priority in this list, and I want you to see it. Um, when we begin with the idea of adoring him as father, when we begin with an awareness of who he is, all that he's done, the, 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 the grace, the mercy that flows to us because of Jesus, our adoption in him and this intimate relationship that we have and all the promises that come to us from our God, when we grow aware of that and we adore him for that, you want to know what the natural outflow will be? Surrender. Moving from adoration naturally is going to come this idea of because you are so good and because you are caring for me and I know it, man, your name be hallowed, your kingdom come. I want others in this world to see and experience what I see and experience in you. It's a lot easier to let go of your name, to let go of your kingdom when you get that you have a dad who's watching over everything for your good. And then if you were to move from there to the idea of knocking, here's what you start to see. Beginning with or, or with uh, adore, adoration and surrender coming before this idea of our requests, it reconfigures, it reorients our petitions. When we think of prayer... We probably often think of petitions. We think of asking. We think of coming with all the stuff that we need. And we kind of start there. But when we follow along with Jesus here, it reorients our asking. So now it's not so much as we request or as we knock. It's not coming from this place almost like a master speaking to his little errand boy. Like, God, I need you to do this now. And by the way, I need this a little bit later. And maybe at the end of the day, I'd like to see that on my desk. Thank you very much. But instead, it changes the whole exchange. There is a trust to it. And here's what I want you to catch more than anything. The request, the knocking now, turn not from this idea of demanding into actually what we're giving God is, is opportunity. And here's what I mean. When we lay out our requests, God, we need bread. We need your provision. God, we need forgiveness. We need your pardon. God, we need you to keep us from the evil one, to not lead us into temptation. We need your protection. When we bring these things to him, what we are actually doing is giving him opportunity to hallow his name, bring his kingdom in and through our own lives. What I mean by that is God loves to glorify himself by providing for the needs of his people. You hear that? That is critical. It is not contrary to a concern for his name and his kingdom to bring your needs to him. 
In fact, one of the ways God loves to hallow his name and bring his kingdom is by coming into the needy stuff that you bring and, and helping. Showing you and the world that he is a good, good father. Your requests and needs are not contrary to a concern for his glory. They become one of the main stages upon which his glory can be displayed. But you don't typically get that when you jump into prayer with, I need and I want and I need and I want. It feels like it's all about you, right? And you owe me and I need it. And when it comes, we hardly even notice because we moved on to the next thing. But we'll talk about that a little bit. Later. But when we move from adoring through surrender to then bringing our requests and knocking, it changes things. God, here's a way. Show my neighbors what you're like by providing for us in this way as a family. Everyone's looking in right now. I mean, this is how the Psalms will probably spend an entire message tracing out this pattern throughout various prayers in the Bible. Just so you know. I mean, so much of the Psalms, this is how they request, God, if you abandon us, what is the world going to think about you as dad, as father? Your name is on us. You set your name on us as your people. If you let us die here in the wilderness, if you let, if you let us starve, if you, if you falter on your plan or on your promises, what are the nations going to say about you? Therefore, for your glory, come and work for our good. You see that? It's amazing. It's amazing. And it's, I think, laid out right here for us. Pattern priorities in the prayer that Jesus gives to his disciples and to us. Now, I would want to say at least this. I, I, I would never want to be dogmatic about this idea of priority or order, okay? Hopefully you've caught that from things I've already said. I don't think that God is standing in heaven and going, hey, you didn't start with adoration. I ain't going to hear that. No, I'm not saying that at all. But what I am saying is I do think what we have here is something that ought to be present in our hearts. Anytime we're approaching God, whether they're the words on our lips, whether it's in a different order, what I'll show you is it's all over the place, but in in the prayers in the Bible, you, you see it. You see these very things of knowing who God is and requesting from Him, but surrendering to Him. And so, one way or another, I think these are all important aspects of our prayer as we approach God. Uh, the final thing I'd simply point out, and perhaps you can tell by the title of the message as it is on your handout there, is um, you might be helped to see the acronym that this pattern and its priorities form. I don't mean to give you too many acronyms. Um, I know I did that for how to study the Bible as well, but uh, these are basically my two go-tos. I've got DNA for studying the Bible and then ASK or ask when it comes to prayer. Um, Adore, A, surrender, S, knock, K. In other words, ask. I've found it to be a helpful way as I get on my knees before God of, of, of recollecting all that Jesus teaches here. Perhaps you will as well. Um, so with that, the plan now, as far as I see it, is 
to kind of start to move back down from the macro level, come back in, narrow our lens, and look at the details, take these parts one at a time. This morning, we're going to only have time for the first two, namely adore and then surrender. Next week, we'll tackle uh, the idea of knocking uh, and probably the parable and things that Jesus gives after verse 4 as well. So first, adore. Um, with this, we return uh, to those that opening word in Jesus' prayer, Father. And obviously, again, I looked at this a lot last week, but I want to take it from yet another angle here uh, this morning. And what I want to do before uh, I even really dive into that is read you something. Uh, it's a bit long, but I found it to be powerful. Um, in my Google News feed, I try to kind of stay in tune with anything that might pop up that's, you know, relating to Silicon Valley. I, my eyes, my ears are kind of tuned into that because this is, this is the area I live. This is the area our king, our, our church is. This is the place that we're trying to advance the kingdom, uh, for Jesus. And so, uh, I want to know what's going on here. I want to hear and tune into stories about this place. And so there was a story run, um, Maybe last week, I think it was, uh, about uh, Steve Jobs and his uh, troubled relationship with one of his daughters. And I, so I opened it up, so I was like, oh, wow. Uh, I wanted to bring it to you here this morning. You might not understand why at first, but hopefully you will after I'm done. <laughs> Apple became the first ever U.S. company to reach $1 trillion in value on Thursday, reported CNN. The momentous achievement closely follows a shockingly candid new peak at late Apple co-founder Steve Jobs' daughter, Lisa Brennan Jobs. Upcoming memoir, Small Fry is the title. In an excerpt of the memoir published in Vanity Fair, Lisa, Steve's eldest daughter, now 40, details a harrowing account of her childhood spent in the shadow of her famous Absentee father. Steve famously denied paternity of Lisa, whose mother was uh, Chrisanne Brennan, for years, even saying in court papers that he was sterile and infertile and, as a result thereof, did not have the physical capacity to procreate a child. Steve would later marry Lorene Powell in 1991 and have three more children. Born in 1978, when Steve and Brennan were only 23, Lisa writes in the excerpt that her father arrived a few days late, claiming, it's not my kid. She says her mother was forced to hold several jobs and relied on welfare payments to make ends meet during the first two years of her life, writing, my father didn't help. It wasn't until after 1980 that a DNA test proved Steve's paternity with the court requiring minimal child support payments and medical insurance coverage for Lisa until age 18. Finalized just four days before Apple went public, making the tech giant a millionaire, according to the memoir. From that point forward, Lisa chronicles a complicated and distant relationship with her dad from the 13 temporary homes she lived in with her single mother to the conversations that transpired after the father-daughter pair began spending more time together. For a long time, she says, I hoped that if I played one role, my father would take the corresponding role. Lisa writes in Vanity Fair, in the Vanity Fair expert excerpt, I would be the beloved daughter, he would be the indulgent father. 
Yet, she says, if I had observed him as he was or admitted to myself what I saw, I would have known that he would not do this. Lisa also details in small fry an exchange with her father when she asked to have his Porsche when he was, quote, done with the car, claiming her father ultimately retorted, you're not getting anything, you understand? You're nothing. You're getting nothing. Lisa says there was never a grand reconciliation before Steve's death at age 56 in 2011 after a long battle with pancreatic cancer. Writing in the Vanity Fair excerpt for him, I was a blot on a spectacular ascent. As our story did not fit with the narrative of greatness and virtue he might have wanted for himself, my existence ruined his streak. Now, why in the world do I take a few minutes to read that in the middle of a sermon? Here's why. I suspect, though probably none of us would ever say it, some of us indeed have felt it, maybe even this morning are feeling it right now, namely, that God is kind of a dad, if he is a dad at all, for us like Steve Jobs is, was for this girl. He has everything. Man, his company just hit, you know, one of the greatest marks of any company ever. He had millions of dollars when the court ruled, hey, you've got to give minimal payments. He barely shelled out just enough to get by, denies her, doesn't want anything to do with her. God has everything, kind of like that, could give anything. Hey, Dad, can I have your Porsche when you're done? No. (laughs) Okay, you've got 10 cars. All right, all right, cool. You're not going to get anything? God has everything could give anything, and yet what I often feel, what I have regularly experienced is that I ask and I come and nothing seems to happen. It feels like he's kind of embarrassed by me. It feels like he's annoyed by me. It feels like he's absentee. He's not here with me. It feels like he's, if he is a dad, he's no good. I recognize that there are perhaps plenty of ways a person might come to feel this way about God, but I suppose probably the the one track that most of us would go down is through this track of prayer. We ask and we ask, we pray and we pray, we hope and we hope, we read promise and after promise, we, we quote them in his presence on our knees, and we get up and nothing seems to have changed. It's as if he says, you're not going to get anything. Oh, I could. As far as I'm concerned, you're not mine. The cancer is still there. The spouse still hasn't come. Single after all of these years. Going to bed alone. 
the child is still walking away from Jesus. Who knows if they'll come back. Been praying for years. What's changed? The hurt of this life still abides in one way or another. Does our father hear us? We don't doubt it. Does he care? If we're honest, we're not always sure. And so what can happen if we're not careful is we grow suspicious of God as Father. We grow suspicious of Him. And this, brothers and sisters, will wreak havoc on our prayer lives. I might put it like this. Uh, Let me ask you, have you been praying? If you were to consider your past week, if you were to look at your relationship with God, your prayer life, Apart from maybe a little prayer here before bed or a meal, I mean, is prayer kind of the breath of your life? Is, is, is prayer happening throughout the day? Are you praying? What I have found, if I could put it uh, somewhat forcefully, is that if we are not praying, it is usually because of one of either two things. Usually probably a mix. Either... We don't think ourselves desperate enough. Or we don't think our God good enough. To put it another way, we don't pray either because we think we can handle it. I got this. I don't need to call in for reinforcements yet. I'll save that play for when it gets really hairy. God help me. Right? I think I can handle it. Or on the other side, I don't think God will help. So whether I think I can handle it or not, I'm on my own here. And hence, prayerlessness results. And of course, the one I'm focusing on here is that second part of it. This idea of God Seeming to us to not be good enough. Seeming to us to not be interested in helping. Seeming to us to be more like Steve Jobs as a dad than the Heavenly Father the Bible talks about. We grow suspicious. And it destroys our prayer life. Now, next week I anticipate that I'm going to deal more with the question um, of a, and the apparent problem of unanswered prayers. But this morning, I simply want to read to you one of my favorite verses in all the Bible. I know it doesn't fix the problems that I just brought to the table. But perhaps you'd hear him say it to you this morning and speak into your suspicions, into your cynicism. Luke 12, 32, Jesus speaks to his disciples and he says this, Fear not, little flock. For it is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. It is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. He delights to do good for you. Our issue is not the Steve Jobs issue. We're knocking, we're knocking, and what we hear from God is... I don't know you. I don't care about you. You're not getting anything from me but the bare minimum to get you off my back. We don't hear that. What we hear is, it is my good pleasure to give you the kingdom. The only caveat is it might not come in the way that you want it at the time that you want it. Trust me. 
even when I say no, I am giving the kingdom to you. You just don't quite see it yet. I gave my son as a stake in the ground to say, if I did not withhold him from you, I will withhold no good thing. Bank on it. He's a good father. So the place to start in prayer, the reason why I spent all this time here is because your whole prayer life is going to key off of this. And if you're stuck feeling like God is more like Steve Jobs, like you're just kind of a nuisance and he doesn't really want to hang out with you or give to you or share, if you, then your, your prayer life will be severely distorted if you have a prayer life at all. But if you start with the idea of God as Father and you wrestle there with him, and I need to see this, you start with adoration, then the rest will follow. Growing aware of who he is for you in Jesus and delighting in that. Knowing him as Father. If I could say a quick word about thanksgiving here. Not the holiday, but the act of giving thanks. Uh, Because I do think it fits with this idea of adoration. In our prayers, um, it seems to me from the scriptures that the, the activity of giving thanks is supposed to play a prominent role. And I think it correlates to this idea of adoring God as a good dad. This idea of thanking him for what we see him doing in our lives and what he's already done, what he said about the future for us. Let me show you a few of the the texts that just immediately came to my mind on this point. One of them, perhaps uh, you'd be thinking of all of these as well, but one of them is Psalm 100 verse 4, where those coming before God are exhorted to Enter into his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. So the idea is as you're coming before Yahweh, as you're coming before God, we should enter in with with thanksgiving. Praising him, aware of who it is you're approaching. Not a master coming to an errant boy, but a dependent child coming to a loving father who is happy and ready to help. And he will shift and and shape our affections where they're awry as we come to him. Help us stay on track in the mission for our good and his glory. Or you might think of some of those things that Paul encourages uh, his uh, churches as he's writing to them um, to do. Colossians 4.2, Paul writes this, Continue steadfastly in prayer. Now catch this, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. I love that for a couple of reasons. One is, I think Paul knows that uh, we're prone in our prayers to forget about thanksgiving. We're prone to simply outline all the stuff we need God to give and we need him to do and we want him to change. And we don't, we we don't watch for, wait, am I coming with a thankful heart? Am I aware of the one I'm talking to and all that he has given to me already? Am I confident in his love and thanking him for what I've seen? The other thing that comes from that, this idea of being watchful in your prayers with thanksgiving, is, is this idea that you, it's like Paul knows that God's been at work in your life. He knows that there are things that you can give thanks. Every time you drop to your knees to pray, he knows there are things that you could, God, thank you. 
The issue is, are your eyes open to those things? Are you watchful? Not just even in your prayers, but in your life. Are you seeing it? And then thanking him for it. It changes things. It changes the whole tenor of, 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 of your relationship when you do that. Ephesians 5.20, in a similar vein, Paul calls the church to give thanks always and for everything. You hear this? That sounds crazy. To God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. What does it mean to give thanks to God always and for everything? Quite frankly, what I just said, it means, <laughs> it means that really... You don't need to go on a hunt for what are those few things that God is doing that are good in your life. Like, oh, I got a new job. Thank you. Oh, good. I've got this little piece over here where some money came in. Thank you. The idea of giving thanks for God always and in everything means there's no need to hunt because your entire life, even the hurt, is working for your good. And worthy of, 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 of bringing thanks to God for those things. Can you believe that? I mean, that's like Romans 5. Like the suffering is producing in you something. God, Hebrews 12. It's discipline from a loving father who's working in you. And, and, and he wants for his good pleasure. <laughs> so everything in your life can be brought to God through the lens of thanksgiving. That's convicting, isn't it? But it's amazing. And when we start to do this, when we start to adore God as our Father, when we come to Him uh, being watchful in our prayers with thanksgiving to Him, what we find then as we move to uh, the second part of the, the pattern and priorities that Jesus gives us in the Lord's Prayer is that our hearts are warmed and they are readied to surrender. He's a good dad. He's going to take care of you. We want his name to be hallowed. We want his kingdom to come. We can lay down the pursuit of our own name. Lay down the pursuit of our own kingdom. Because we know him and we love him. So let's move into that piece then. Um, let me say this though um, in the transition. Think about it with me. If you are suspicious of God, if you are not convinced of him as good father, is it not true that the last thing you will pray is what we're about to look at in the latter part of verse 2? Is it not true that the last thing you're going to do with someone you don't trust is give them everything and say, take it and do what you want? See how that will just stop your prayer life immediately? At least it's in the way that, that the Lord is calling us to. But if you do see it, see how it flows. And it will just kind of erupt from your heart. We want others to know what we have. We want others to see. So let's look at uh, the latter part of verse 2 and, and then take those, um, those prayers there one at a time. Father, hallowed be your name and then your kingdom Come. So first, hallowed be your name. What is meant by God's name? Quick word should be said about that just for a moment. Um, I think probably most simply put for us is uh, the words of Martin Lloyd-Jones here. He says this, the name means all that is true of God. 
And all that has been revealed concerning God. It means God and all his attributes, God and all that he is and of himself, and God and all that he has done and all that he is doing. In other words, um, the name of God is shorthand, if you will, for all that God is. For his glory. For the entirety of his being. This is names wrapped up. You just take the name and wrap it around all that God is. That's what it stands for. That's why when, if you might recall in the book of Exodus, Moses boldly asks God, he says, show me your glory. This, I believe, is Exodus 33. And um, what does God do? Show me your glory. Okay, I'll show you my glory. So here's how he responds. I will make all my goodness pass before you, and I will proclaim before you my name. In other words, to see God's glory is to learn God's name. Therefore, to pray for God's name to be hallowed or set apart or, or seen as holy is to pray that all that he is would be seen and revered in the world. Now, one more thing I could say here before I, I, I take you a little bit further is uh, I want to be clear. We are not trying to say, Jesus is not trying to say that we better pray for this because his name isn't holy. It's not currently holy, and it's up to us to kind of push the, the ledger forward uh, by our prayers. No, his name has always been, will always be holy, set apart. The problem is, it's not seen as such in the world. The nations, your neighbors, perhaps, don't care about his name, aren't interested in his name, his glory, don't find it beautiful, aren't wanting to see anything about it. It's not holy to them. It's common or even worse. It's like the dirt beneath their feet. Let me step on the name of your God. Thank you very much. And so a a child of this dad who has tasted and seen of his goodness sees that going on in the world and drops to his knees and says, Father, Hallowed be your name. Let them see in you what I see. Let them experience in you what I experience. And they will know there is none like my God. If you look carefully through the scriptures, you cannot miss the fact that everything that God does is grounded in and guided by a concern for his name. I could take you, we could spend the whole afternoon looking at some of these, but I'll just show you a few. But the, the basic idea is that he wants the cosmos, or he wants the world, he wants the universe, even the spiritual beings in the heavenly places, to see all that he is. He wants to put all that he is on display so that people can finally see and be satisfied in him. Check this out. It is for the sake of his name that he brings Israel out from Egypt. Psalm 106, 7 through 8. I'm not going to read these. So I'm sorry. My manuscript is online if you wanted to check them out on your own time. But it's for the sake of his name, God says, that he brings Israel out from Egypt. 
It's for the sake of his name that he doesn't make an end of them after their rebellion in the wilderness. Ezekiel 20, 13 to 14. Shows mercy. Why? Not for your sake, but for the sake of my name. Because the nations are looking in wondering what this God is like. And if I take you out of Egypt and kill you here, that because of your sin, they're going to say, man, that's a bad father. He abandoned his kids, even though you deserve it. I'm going to show you mercy. I want them to know I am a merciful God. It's for the sake of his name that he continues to have mercy on them, Israel, even after centuries more of rebellion in the land, Isaiah 48, 9 through 11. And it's for the sake of his name that he makes pr- the promise of a new covenant, Ezekiel 36, 22 to 28. He says, all right, all right, all right. My people, we're going to do this a different way. I'm going to put my spirit within you. I'm going to write my law on your heart. I'm going to do it for the sake of my name. We're going to wash that sin. We're going to change things. We're going to do it uh, for the sake of my name. So the nations look in and go, wow, the God of Israel, the God of, uh, of the Christians, it's incredible. Now, it's also for the sake of his name that Jesus goes to the cross. This one I did want to read to you. John 12, 27 to 28. After all of these promises and, and these things coming through the Old Testament with the people of Israel and God overlooking their sin and staying uh, you know, uh, uh, true to his covenant with them and all these things and promising even more for them. How is he going to accomplish it? What's going to happen? Well, it's going to be the cross. It's going to be what Jesus does at Calvary. But check this out. John 12, 27 to 28. The hour of Jesus' death is approaching. And he is beginning to feel the weight of it. So what does he do? Well, hopefully now, as we would expect, he prays. What does he say? Now is my soul troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. And this is just awesome. This is now the Father's voice over the Son's. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. In other words, why the cross? Why the resurrection? Why the gospel? It's for the glory of God's name. It's because God made all these promises. God prophesied all the stuff he would do for the good of his people. And if he lets that fall, if he lets that falter, his name looks bad. He looks like a liar. He looks like he abandons his own. And so Jesus knows I'm going to bring every promise in. Every promise is yes and amen in me. I have to go to the cross. Listen, what should I say, Father? Save me from this hour. No, glorify your name. And to the cross he goes to uphold, to see the name of his Father hallowed in the world. That's why we're here. That's why we know God as gracious and good. He went to the cross with a concern for that name. So we, again, having tasted and seen something of 
this amazing grace, begin to be concerned with that sort of thing as well. Father, hallowed be your name, whatever it costs me. I want my neighbor to see your name as holy, whatever it costs me. Your kingdom come. This is where we'll bring things to a close. There is more that Jesus is teaching us here to pray. Um, and it's, it's this kind of related idea of your kingdom, God's kingdom, coming. Um, the concept, the theme of the kingdom is massive in the Bible. Can't even remotely do it justice. In fact, some scholars would say the idea of the kingdom of God is what holds together the entire biblical narrative from beginning to end. From Eden to the new heavens to the new earth, um, God has been moving towards, God has been establishing kingdom. And the crazy thing that we see here in our text is that Christ is calling us to partner with God, as it were, in seeing this kingdom come and advance in the world through prayer. In fact, um, as I was reading on this, one guy by the name of Eric Raymond wrote, it's as humbling as it is fascinating to consider that God advances his kingdom agenda through the prayers of his people. That he invites us into this. I might put it in this way. If hallowing his name is God's chief passion, then bringing in his kingdom is God's chief purpose. And we get to be a part of both through prayer. But I realize that still doesn't help us understand what it even means to pray for his kingdom to come. So let me uh, help you out a little bit um, with this. Quick survey through Luke and this idea of the kingdom will fill this out for us. Um, Luke 4, 43. The first thing we need to see is that the kingdom of God is actually basically the same idea as the good news, the gospel. It's one and the same. When you talk about the good news or the gospel, you might as well be talking about the kingdom of God. Jesus says this, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God. What we are to understand is because God is a good king, the arrival of his kingdom is good news. For the broken and the lowly and the oppressed and the sinner who's longing for forgiveness. It's good news. We start to see more of why this is so as we continue. Luke 9.11 and in other places we see that the preaching of this kingdom is often accompanied by miraculous healings. Let me read this to you. Jesus welcomed the crowds spoke to them of the kingdom of God and cured those who had need of healing. In other words, this is what the king and his kingdom coming looks like. It looks like restoration. It looks like healing. It looks like broken things being put back together. Therefore, perhaps, as we bend our knee to pray, Father, let your kingdom come, it might look like praying for that sister who's been hospitalized 
And asking God to heal. It might look like asking God to remove the cancer from that loved one. It might look like praying for healing. God is a God who restores. And when the good news of the kingdom of God is proclaimed, it's often accompanied with miraculous healings. In Luke 11.20, really just immediately following our text, if you dropped your eyes down... We see that the coming of this kingdom means the overthrow of Satan and demons. I love this. Jesus says this, if it is by the finger of God, he he just cast out uh, some demons from uh, this guy, and he says this, if it is by the finger of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. In other words, there's a clash of kingdoms. And the kingdom of God makes no room, has no, has no patience for the kingdom of the devil. And all the destruction, all the lies, all the deceit. So when the kingdom of God comes, it puts the devil on the run. Therefore, praying for the kingdom to come might look like praying against the enemy and his influence in the world or the way he's blinded the eyes of some people that you love or the way he's tempting you towards this or that. It might look like resisting and praying against. The kingdom comes when the devil flees, when when God's finger touches and the devil cowers. In Luke 13, 28, we see that the coming of this kingdom means judgment. Now, this one's a little harder for us to swallow sometimes, but it makes perfect sense. It means judgment not just on the devil and his crew, but on all those among men and women that have followed in that rebellion. Jesus says this, In that place, hell, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth when you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but you yourselves cast out. So the idea of the kingdom necessarily involves a separation from evil. And you've got to put all of this together. A good king who cares about restoring all things and overthrowing, pushing out, overcoming the work of the devil will inevitably need to remove all injustice, all oppression, all abuse, all wickedness, evil, sin, all of it. And those who are instruments of it. It would not be a happy place, a happy kingdom, if God just opened the doors wide and said, hey, come on, we'd just be right where we are today. So it is good news, and the the, the New Testament church longed for the day. That's how the book of Revelation ends. Come and make it right. Vindicate your saints from all the ways that they're persecuted and attacked. Overturn the injustice. And make things right. Therefore, praying for God's kingdom to come might look something like that. Finally, in Luke 23, 42-43, we see that the coming of this kingdom means salvation for the broken, the repentant sinner. I love this. Do you remember the words of the thief dying on the cross next to Jesus for his sin? Do you remember his words? 
Remember his request to Jesus and how he phrased it? Catch this. Verse 42, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Remember me when you come into your kingdom. And what's Jesus' response? Truly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Here's the bottom line. Here's what just, just flies to the surface of this beautiful scene. This brother dying on the cross in judgment for his sin, uh, the, the, the thief, knows, has this conviction by the Holy Spirit, we would assume, that Jesus' kingdom is a kingdom of grace. So even though, man, he knows he's guilty, he says, remember me when you come in your kingdom. I have this sense that when you come, it's not going to mean cut me down and destroy me, but you're going to restore. You can help. You can forgive. You can have mercy. So remember me, and your kingdom is good news for me. And Jesus says, you know what? You're exactly right. Today you'll be with me in paradise. It will be good news for all who bend their knee to the king. For all who see their need and stop with the charade of self-sufficiency. It will be the greatest news in all the world. The satisfaction of every longing. When the kingdom comes. So, therefore, pray for our Father's kingdom to come might look like bending your knee, getting on your face, and begging for the salvation of your kid, your spouse, your parent, your neighbor. Because God's kingdom coming looks like grace moving on the heart of a sinful rebel, softening So that suddenly where there once was outrage, where there once was resistance, now there's overjoyed acceptance and awareness of God as good Father. Prayer then, as Jesus teaches us, begins with adoring the Father for all that he is for us in Christ. And in turn, it continues on to the idea of surrendering. The idea of asking for his name to be hallowed for his kingdom to come. Let's pray. God, Father, thank you that you are, well gosh, I just feel convicted even by Paul's words. And what you brought to my mind even as I was preaching and wasn't in my notes. We can give thanks for everything. Not just the few things we hunt down, but everything. So God, we thank you now for the fact that we have a Bible in our hands. That your word has come to us. We thank you now for the fact that you have softened our hearts to the gospel, awareness of our need of it, and of your great provision in Jesus. We thank you. That your name being hallowed and your kingdom coming is not does not mean we have to somehow kind of surrender our needs and forget about anything we would ever want. Your name being hallowed and your kingdom coming becomes the very fulfillment of our desires. And everything we long for. 
God, we thank you that you are a good dad and you are caring for us more than we know. God, would you press against the devil in the way he would lead us astray from that truth? Cause us to question, did God really say? Yes, he did. And he's a good dad. It's in your name we pray. Amen.